everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Pitching to Contact. I would tell you that we got a new episode every week, but that would be a lie. We record whenever our lives allow us to, this being one of those times. As always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, student manager at BGSU Baseball, Pete Horner. How are you doing, dude? I'm just vibing, man. How about you, Richard? I'm doing okay, man. Um, It's actually getting a little warmer up here in Canada. Um, I went outside the other day and did some long toss for the first time. I feel like I tore my UCL already. (laughs) But um, we also have another uh, co-host, Payton Trawick. He does some stuff for the University of Central Arkansas baseball. I don't actually know what you do, dude, but how's it going, man? And what do you actually do for UCA? Uh, I was kind of helping just practice. I was running as a student assistant, just kind of helping with data and all that kind of stuff. And I'm doing well, man. How are you? Dude, I'm doing awesome. I I should be icing my arm. Um, But everything up here is going well. I just actually finished uh, data processing for uh, my thesis study. All the picture data has been done. Um, I'm wrapping things up. It's exciting. Awesome. Speaking speaking of pitching, speaking of throwing, uh, we have a really cool guest here today. He is the founder of Driveline Baseball, which is the data-driven baseball player development grounds based out of Seattle, Washington, Kyle Bodie. Kyle, how's it going? Going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Um, and what I, this is going to be a really interesting um, episode, I feel. And where I kind of wanted to start off is just talking about the winter meetings. And for me, I'm, I'm a 24-year-old graduate student. This is my second time down at the winter meetings. I was there last year in Orlando. And this meeting in particular, it was really interesting to me because we see so many baseball people around the hotel talking free agency, talking teams. Um, everyone's just looking at all the GMs. But then you had a driveline meetup. And I, f- and I, was, I was there. I was able to speak to you for a little bit. And I found that to be so different than anything else going on at the meetings because you go there and there's a lot of people talking about biomechanics, technology, things happening in the game on the player development side. I just want to uh, hear your opinion about just how the event went and just talk a little bit about your experience at um, the winter meetings this past year. Yeah, the event was uh, it was crazy. I mean, it really was nuts. You saw it, it spilled over into another bedroom and um yeah, it, it happened like uh, what happened at the meeting was something that happens at college parties when you throw parties. But I was not like very popular in college or high school or ever. So like didn't really realize that when you invite like 35 people that just like 100 people show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it turns out that that's what happened. So I invited like 35 and the place was packed with a bunch of people. Um, yeah. So it was really humbling to see like people were really interested in what we had to say. A lot of media members uh, like three fourths of the athletic was there. Uh, so it was really cool. It was a really fun time and I really enjoyed my conversations. Uh, spend most of the, most of the time talking to Canadians actually, which is funny. Yeah, there we go. Um, I feel like the game of baseball is really growing up here in Canada and it was just really interesting hearing you speak. Um, I know Shai Davidi and Ben Nicholson Smith were, uh, over there with Sportsnet. Um, it was a really, really great experience. But um, I remember in our conversation, one of the things you touched on was a few years ago, you were at the winter meetings and you were looking to uh, make get meetings with other teams, other people, and you weren't really getting that. And then you told me this past uh, winter meetings, you, ca- you actually have to tell people no. So in a way, can you please just describe how Driveline has grown over the past few years and just what, it, what it's at right now? Yeah, at the winter meetings in San Diego, it was a massive uh, embarrassment, honestly. I was just in the in the lounge trying to meet 
people or trying to schedule meetings with people I already knew inside the game and no one had time for me. I, I literally didn't spend one minute speaking to team representatives. Uh, all the time that I did get managed to talk to people were agents, uh, which was great, uh, but you know, it really wasn't the reason I was there. So I figured I would skip the next few winter meetings and really focus on developing our product. And that I think has been the biggest revelation uh, for me. I've read a lot of business books and here's heard some podcasts from people that I, I like uh, in the field of business that have done a really good job. There's a book called The Trillion Dollar Coach coming out soon. It's about a guy that very few people know. His name is Bill Campbell and he coached Steve Jobs, uh, Elon Musk, uh, tons and tons and tons of people, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, very, very successful people in Silicon Valley and he never took payment. He always did it for free. Uh, he had made money elsewhere, elsewhere. And so he would just love coaching and he became one of the world's best at it. And so he always would talk about like how the product is by far the most important thing and how people, once they have a little bit of success, tend to focus on other things like marketing and sales. And so the reason that I think we've seen a lot of growth uh, is I was good enough to spot the opportunity that was in front of me. Like, uh, player development was going to move in a quantitative way. I think I was smart to realize that, so I'll give myself a little credit there. But then it's relentless focus on product and relentless focus on research and development. Uh, and that, I think, has been the reason that we've catapulted from one person packing uh, envelopes full of weighted balls in my garage to having 35 people. We just had an all-hands meeting, a dinner, and I addressed our entire company. And there were probably eight people that weren't even there. They were remote or were traveling. And there were 30 people in the room. So it was really humbling to see how fast it's grown and how how good of a job our employees have done of like being self-managers and, and good product designers. And that's always the number one thing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the explosion of driveline has been unbelievable. Um, Kyle, you said, um, I mean, I've overheard you went to Baldwin Wallace University. I did. I went, the, I went there before it was a university. It was a college when I was there. But now it's a university. So that's nice. So um, I've also overheard you grew up in uh, Parma, Ohio, if I'm correct. I did. I was born in Cleveland, inner city, so like old Brooklyn area. But then I did go to Parma for high school. Yeah, I moved there later. You know, that's actually really cool because um, I actually live right up the street from Baldwin Wallace. I grew up in Berea, Ohio. I know that area really, really well. Yeah. So I overheard in a Watch Momentum thing in a preview that you were talking about how you kind of started Driveline because you wanted to like prove to the Tampa Bay Rays that you could develop players. And I... That video never dropped anywhere, at least from what I noticed. I was just kind of curious. It just really sparked my interest in how you really got the idea of driveline going and just really ran with it and obviously turned it into what it is today. Yeah, uh, happy to announce that that video will come out uh, hopefully within the next month. Uh, basically, the entire video is done except uh, – Taiki, the person who's putting it together, requested some DVDs of me as a kid. So my parents digitized 19 full DVDs of my childhood. Uh, we took a lot of home videos. And he's going to put them in the video to embarrass the shit out of me, which would be fun. Uh, so that's what everyone has to look forward to on that side. But um, how I got started is uh, I moved to Seattle when I was 22. Um, prior to that, I played I played baseball, you know, and my career is not worth talking about. I, wasn't, I was very good while young. And then never really develop. It's it's just whatever. Like, I basically was a nobody. And so when I moved to Seattle, I had fallen out of love. I didn't watch much baseball. I was a huge fan of the Indians growing up in the 90s, uh, but then, like, really kind of fell out of love with it. And moved to Seattle uh, just because I didn't want to be in Cleveland anymore. And as one of the things I wanted to do, I started coaching Little League. And I'd never coached before, uh, but I just decided it might be some, something 
fun to do. And I really fell in love with coaching uh, young talent. They were 13, 14. So a little bit older for Little League. It was the juniors division heading into high school. And I really enjoy the idea of like quantitative development when it comes to quantitative analysis as, it, as it's applied to player development rather than scouting, which I, at the time, no one was really talking about and kind of few people talk about it today. So that was kind of how I got started. I got a meeting with the Rays early on and there was just not really enough there. And I really wanted a job inside professional baseball. I just really, really wanted to become a pitching coach and work my way up the ladder in a very traditional manner. And it just never worked out. Like I could never get a full-time opportunity. I worked contract work for Tampa, contract work for Houston and a few other places. And by the time someone had offered me a full-time job, you know, the development of enough of our pitchers was so successful that I had to just bet on myself. You know, Trevor Bauer was finally becoming a full-time big leaguer and a few other players were reaching the big leagues. And I said, uh, yeah, I appreciate the offer, but it's, and I can't believe I'm turning down an offer to become a pitching coordinator, but it's time to focus on my business. And that's kind of, it's kind of how driveline is. That's where it is. That's why I always say in watch momentum and everywhere, like the business shouldn't even exist because people just didn't see the opportunity 10 years ago. Um, but I did, and I knew it was going to be a big thing and I wanted to build it somewhere else, but had to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that you bring up Trevor Bauer. And I was actually curious how that relationship really started because there's not too many uh, baseball players who are like Trevor Bauer, so, someone who's like so data driven. And I'm a Toronto Blue Jays fan, and the Cleveland Indians uh, faced us in the ALCS a couple years ago, and he was actually scratched, I think, from a game because he was playing around with his droid. And while a lot of people just had no idea what this guy was doing, like just a lot of uh, casual baseball fans. Um, I've been just so interested by the type of stuff that Trevor does and the type of stuff that you guys do over in driveline that this, this pairing is just so interesting to me. So can you maybe touch a little bit about how that whole thing happened and how you guys started really working and training over? Yeah. Yeah. He's not much, he's not much of a fan favorite in in Canada as far as, as I'm understand, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I met him in 2012 at a coach's boot camp in Houston where he was training and, he was having problems with his high-speed cameras, and he had problems with the video skipping frames. Mm-hmm. And he asked me why. I gave some presentations, and he was interested in how I went about things because to him it was different than anything he had heard. So he asked me some questions about the cameras. I said, you have the wrong memory cards. You should buy these Class 10 memory cards. And he said, okay. Then he did, and the cameras had no problems. And he was like, oh, well, like Kyle actually knows some stuff about technology. In the middle of 2013, he had changed his mechanics, and he was shitty. Like He was in AAA throwing 88 to 90. Had changed his mechanics entirely from a really over-the-top UCLA pitcher, like Lincecum-esque looking pitcher, to a much more kind of traditional three-quarters arm now. And uh, getting used to that was taking some time. He was walking a lot of batters. Uh, he was Stuff was down. So he called me and he just said, look, I'm having trouble. No one can seem to help me. And then we started talking. He made a few changes based on what I had told him to do. And uh, then he was like, hey, you know, that really helped. I want to come out and see you in the offseason. And every year since then, it's kind of grown. And then in 2014, he became kind of a full-time trainee at our facility. And now, you know, it's been here ever since. So it's been really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one thing with Trevor, I was actually looking at some numbers uh, before we hopped on the pod. I noticed in his first two starts combined, he only gave up, I think it was five barrels. And, and just to see his development across the last couple of years into a potential uh, AL Cy Young really winner this year, as where I think he could take it to, is, has been really fascinating. Just see his development and his approach being so different from everybody else and him being able to succeed the way he has. 
Yeah, it's been it's been interesting because like every year he's I always say there's like two people who have ever trained here so far anyway that have really like sacrificed a lot to be here and to do everything. They just like don't take days off. They don't screw around. They never never succumb to temptation, and they just work like they work their asses off. And I've only it's two people: it's him and a guy named Casey Weathers, and that's it. Like everyone else is human, and that's normal. I'm not saying that they're better or worse. I'm just saying like that's how it is. And every time he comes back, you know, we have a very long discussion heading into the off season about what he feels is best, what our quantitative analysts think is best for him. Uh, what our biomechanics team thinks is best for him. Like, what things have changed? Where he, can he improve? Uh, what are the sh- what are the things he can make changes to that take the least amount of time that make the most amount of impact? And so, when people talk about his changeup this year, which is really good, uh, they're like, "Oh, you developed the changeup." But we've been developing a changeup for four years, and it's been shitty for three years. Like, it's just been really hard to get it right. Uh, his slider. He's been trying to throw a slider ever since he switched his arm his slot from 2013, and it's just taken year after year after year of developing. Uh, up the pitches that he wants. And so did it happen in an off season? Yeah, technically. But he also, you know, spent many years failing. And uh, there's just, there's no one. There's just no one at our facility. And I'm pretty sure there's no one uh, in all of Major League Baseball who's that meticulous about their development and works like that hard at what they're trying to do. Yeah, and when you talk about the development, there's two other guys that come to mind that have trained there. Um I know they did over this last offseason. Uh, Nate Pearson and Forrest Whitley. Could you talk a little bit about their development this offseason and kind of where you see their ceiling and you see them growing to the next couple of years as they uh, kind of make the track towards the big leagues? Yeah, they're very similar people, which is, is you know, they're, they're friends, so that's not surprising. And they both throw hard and they're both good prospects. But Pearson is um, – Pearson is, is interesting because he's huge, obviously, and he looks he's a Division One kid that went to a junior college. He was drafted out of junior college out of Florida. And so then the temptation for a junior college kid is to be like, oh, and he throws 100, right? So it's like, oh, he's a big idiot who just throws fastballs and not a lot of feel, but he's a big power pitcher. And um, I'd seen him pitch up here in the in when he was pitching for the Canadians up here. And I was like, wow, this guy can actually pitch. Like, he's got really good shit, but he has, like, good command, and he has he thinks, like, a lot about, like, how to get people out. And the temptation is like when the guy has such good stuff that he's just, oh, he's just runs people over. And that's true because his stuff is premium, but like he actually really is a pitcher, he thinks. And so that was really cool to get to know Nate over the past two years uh, and how he used it and how he chose the college. He left a a pretty good four-year school to go to a junior college because the pitching coach had like a very detailed plan. He's like, Nate went in there knowing he's like, I'm the man. I'm good. I'm going to be drafted. I get that. He's like, but what I'm looking for is not a promise to start on Friday and have exposure. Nate's like, I want to plan on how I can become the best person I can be in the next 12 months. And the coach, Zach Bove, really laid it out. And so, like, here's how we're going to do it. Here's how I'm going to do it. We're going to use this technology. We're going to track this workload. Uh, and then Zach is now a coordinator or a coach with the Twins. Uh, mm-hmm. And Nate is a first-rounder, of course. And so that was really cool. And in Forrest Whitley's case, he's a guy that always wants to do more. Like he's a guy like, I want to do this and how can I optimize this? And how can I get better at this, 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 I want to look at track man, a huge track man guy, a huge velocity guy too, you know? So like, but like, you got to sit Forrest down and be like, look, you're the best pitching prospect in baseball. So we need to, and I'm not saying that's not for nothing. You need to get better. But at the end of the day, we don't really know what you need to get better at. Like you need to go throw, you need to go play in double A and triple A and then the big leagues this year. And we got to find out, like we got to find out what's working and what's not, and uh, a lot of it's just like let's keep Forrest healthy, let's keep him ready to go, um, and go from there. So both those are the guys you love working with because they're yes they're good, but at the end of the day, both 
they both will do, they want to do a lot more. So for, in both cases, you have to actually kind of rein them in and be like, Hey, this is the stuff that's important, uh, which is way more fun than pushing someone. Be like, Hey, you need to do this. You need to do this. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's what, that's what they have in common. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to pitchers just coming into driveline, how do those assessments really work? Because here, let me just tell you a little bit of uh, about how it works in my lab. Um, for my uh, pitching study, and I we talked a little bit about this uh, back in December at uh, the driveline meetup. We have a ten uh, Vicon camera system, and then we have like a, four, a seventy-two marker full body, uh, full, full full body reflective marker set, and that's kind of how we work with our pitchers. And for my study, I had about eighteen pitchers come in to throw. Um, obviously with uh, reflective markers, shit flies off. Everything goes to shit every now and then because it's biomechanics, a button doesn't work. So for my thesis, we ended up using about 12, 11 or 12 of the pitchers. How does it, uh, how do you guys kind of do, do your um, assessments of pitchers over a driveline? Yeah, similar 72 marker. That's, that's a lot. (laughs) That's a tough scene. Uh, I think our marker set is up to about 50 or 50 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, full body and uh, same thing obviously shit flies everywhere though we've had a pretty good solution i'll talk to you off the air i don't want to bore everyone but like we're using, <laughs> sure. like, uh, we're using like custom electrodes now which work really mm. well um nice but uh yeah so we use that and then we you know we do uh, ours are shooting at 240 to 360 hertz uh and then we take that obviously use the inverse dynamics method to get kinematics and kinetics uh but like like a lot of people i think that are pretty smart in this space they realize that a mapping of kinematics and kinetics is worthless on its own. Uh, like Valgus torque and all that is kind of a useless metric on its own uh, and is not really predictive of injury at all. So, or really performance. So what we're looking to do is like use it as an intervention, right? Like get this information and every six weeks retest this and like what markers changed across mm-hmm. the population, like what types of training chart change, what markers with what mm-hmm. confidence values and which things indicate like this person is a high responder for these types of drills and these types of training. This person is a low responder, so needs more volume. And that's really what we've been focusing on for the last couple of years. Our quantitative analysts and our research analysts, uh, Alex Caravan and Dan O'Coin, do a ton of work on that. And it's been awesome to see that type of signal. And that's just one of many signals, right? We're doing strength and power, isometric strength at the shoulder, uh, you know, VB, velocity-based training devices, uh, tons of different stuff. And then from all those signals, we try to synthesize it. And my, my view or where I think it's going to go is like the more data that we collect, um, like I think machine learning is going to play a very large role in how we diagnose and find signal in the noise, uh, whether it's supervised learning or unsupervised learning, figuring out um, what is best for the athletes. And the more data we collect in a rigorous manner and the more time that passes, time is your best friend in this industry, as you certainly know by now, um, like, well, our predictions will become much better uh, and really more like projections in our predictions. It's like, you know, we're going to bucket these people as best we can into discrete buckets without overfitting and prescribe the treatment as we can. Uh, no different than how you would do it in a medical field. Uh, but like that's that's the direction we go. And that's how we do our assessments. And really happy in the direction it's how, how much better it's gotten in the last two years. But our best years are ahead of us for sure on that, because I think we're going to have some really awesome breakthroughs we're going to be able to publish uh, within the next couple of years. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, Kyle, one thing that I've noticed like that has exploded, especially on baseball Twitter, which always never seems endless, is um, the use of like Edgar Toronto cameras for like pitch design, obviously pairing it with Rapsodo or TrackMan data. I was just kind of curious what got you guys into that, what like kind of drawed you to that. Uh, which is like uh, what, what got us into the pitch tracking technologies? Yeah. 
Well, it was a lot of, you know, demand as part of it. You know, like uh, when you work with guys like Trevor, they're going to have very specific questions about TrackMan data. And unless you know it, you know, you're kind of screwed. Uh, when I was working for the Astros from 2013 to 2015, there was such a focus on TrackMan data. And while I obviously was interested in it, then I knew when I was, I knew within two weeks when I was working for the Astros that someday that, that leadership team and the way they did things was going to win the World Series. And I told Sig Middall, my boss, who's now the assistant general manager of the Astros or of the Orioles, um, like, I want to be a part of this. Like, it's just very clear that this is the, right, the correct direction baseball needs to go. And they lost 100 games, 100 games, 100 games. They tanked and all that. And it became very hard to see the direction it was going. But it just was clear to me immediately, like, we have to – everything we can make quantitative and automated, we need to. Uh, that doesn't mean we lose the feel for it, but we need like, and lose the human side of it. I don't think we want to do that. But if we can quantify it with some confidence values and so forth, we need to do that. And so pitching is one of those things, right, when it comes to TrackMan, RepSoto, uh, Yakertech, track, whatever, you know, whatever device you want to use, we need to get that data in there because the answers are in there. We have su- it's such granular and such, you know, precise data. While it's not accurate across the league, it's precise per park and there's correction algorithms. We just, it's just imagine them. I mean, it's every pitch from every game and every batted ball is in a database somewhere that we can analyze the physics of it. And there's error, yes, but like we can adjust for that. And based on all this information, you have really granular kind of battle between the hitter and the pitcher and how the fielders are positioned and so forth. And, and so from that, you, there are answers. There are answers on why batters get out. There's answers on why pitchers get people out. And still today, major league teams are using scouting reports based on feel, based on the most basic spray charts, and they're not, they're not even advancing the game at all. So to me, that's really frustrating, and I guess that's what really motivates me. Like, we want to produce a better product, and um, we, think the, we think the performance of our pitchers in the big leagues and the ones soon to be in the big leagues uh, shows that we've done a pretty good job, and they've done a hell of a job executing the plans that we've set out for them. Kyle, one thing that uh, in college baseball is the gap in technology from, you know, your traditional like power five schools to schools like in, you know, Conference USA, the, uh, you know, Western Athletic Conference, you know, conferences like that, they're a lot smaller in budget stuff. So one thing I'm sure you've seen circulating around, you know, given you're obviously a baseball guy, just like the rest of us, um, you know, we, uh, you look around and you see the vote going on right now about the third paid assistant. Um, so you look around the the second paid assistant at a, a typical university is probably anywhere from twenty two to twenty nine to thirty thousand. So where do you think that might open up the door for a larger budget in technology? Because uh, the route I could see it taking is with, you know, if your conference, say like in the Southland Conference, you vote yes for the third paid assistant. Do you think there might be a way for, uh, you know, like some of these schools to use that wiggle room? Uh, with the additional you know, salary and maybe not hiring that extra coach for a year and maybe putting that towards, you know, technological advances. Because, I mean, honestly, if, if you can, like that'll provide so much better just development for players. I was just curious if you think that that might be a route that some schools could go. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think it's very frustrating that some conferences, notably the Big 12, are not voting in another paid assistant. Um it sucks, like, because I get why they're doing it. They're very selfish, and they don't want coaches to leave. So it is kind of the reason that that's happening. But, you know, the investment, when we talk about taking that money and investing in technology rather than coaching or coaches or individuals, um, I agree, obviously, from a very basic level, the the, the, the general general technology suite that is required uh, produces a ton of value on its own, whether it's, like, some sort of high-speed camera 
and some sort of pitch tracking technology are pretty much mandatory. Uh, almost in that tier, I would include bat sensors like blast sensors. Uh, I think they're really, really good. We've gotten a shitload of value out of them. But uh, you also need someone to actually manage all of it, right? So kind of historically, the director of operations position at these colleges is kind of not a joke, but it's seen like, oh, it's a stepping stone to a real coaching position. And yet I see the director of ops position for college baseball becoming incredibly important because it's going to be someone that can actually take this data, collect it in a rigorous manner and produce metrics to help the coach, like coaches players and get them better. If you can develop the players better, obviously you win more games, but a more systematized way to actually develop the players is a humongous recruiting tool because players every day are getting recruited by colleges. And I hear it from all the coaches everywhere. They're like, Oh, uh, are you guys okay with long toss? Are you guys okay with weighted balls? What kind of pitch tracking technology do you have? Do you have TrackMan? Uh, they always ask these really cra crazy questions, which before in the past, the kid would just show up on campus and be like, okay, cool. Like, where are the parties? Like, you know, like how much is the meal card and so forth? They ask very basic questions and now they're like demanding. And it's funny because my friend Robert Woodard at UNC obviously has no problem recruiting great players at the University of Northern Carolina. But he's like, even kids that come here that should be odd about Chapel Hill, grill mm -hmm. me on our technology and grill me about the analytics team. And UNC has a 10-person 10, 10 analytics team there, which is awesome. But uh, kids are demanding. They want to know how they're going to be set up for pro ball going forward. Are they going to be developed well? And uh, that's, to me, the whole goal of this was not to help UNC or to help Oregon State. The whole goal was to help junior colleges and Division II schools produce affordable products and give them ways to develop their players because they have to. And the last thing I'll say on that is that, you know, the TrackMan is 30 grand, the mobile unit's like 15 grand or something like that. Repsoto is $4,000. Like stuff's pretty expensive, mm -hmm. but like that's how it always is in every industry, right? Everything is expensive and adopted by the people that can afford it. And then over time, as it's proven to become a good thing, the price gets driven down, alternative models come out, the technology gets cheaper. And so I'm really excited. Like the best years for baseball and quantitative development are still to come. And so I'm, I'm really, really fired up about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking about college baseball, it kind of seem, seems that college baseball is just so far ahead of the curve than um, MLB teams. And we see it with with schools like Oregon State and Wake Forest and UNC, how they're just so far ahead in terms of technology. Obviously, and um, on the pro level, we have the, the Houston Astros, Tampa Bay, LA Dodgers, Brewers. But it seems that colleges just a way ahead and we also see that by all the recent hires of college coaches so why do you why do you think that is simple question yeah it's uh i i think there's a couple of reasons for it but the main one is there's no real incentives to develop players in the big league in professional baseball if you think about it like it sounds like a weird statement to say but there are teams out there that have just done a really really bad objectively bad bad job of developing pitchers for two decades and nothing changes. Like nothing changes. Like the like the team still sucks at developing pitchers. And there's multiple teams like this. And there's multiple teams on the hitting side too, right? And yet, like the hitting coach loses his job, but the general manager doesn't. You know, like the owner doesn't get forced out, right? There's just no real accountability. Whereas try that in college. Like try not developing players for three years and see what happens. You know, you're gonna lose a lot, and then you just get fired. The AD fires you immediately and brings in someone else. Right, so the the stimulus is there to actually like actually get the players better because the head coach and the recruiting coordinator, they yes they recruit the players, but then they also coach the players. And in professional baseball, the scout that recruits slash scouts the players and drafts them is not the person that coaches them. So as a result, there's a massive disconnect and a huge amount of blame that can be shared between both. Like if a hitter doesn't develop, a high school hitter doesn't develop over five years, whose fault is it? 
the coach will blame the scout for drafting a guy with a long swing or somebody like, he didn't work hard enough or whatever. And then the scout blames the coach for being a really shitty coach. And then it's like, congratulations, both of them are off the hook now, you know? Uh, so that's, that's, that's why that happens in pro ball and college ball. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, in terms of the pro game, how do you think, how do you feel the game is going to be going towards the future now that we, I mean, at spring training, there are about 29 teams that had Rapsoda at their facilities and you can just see it all across baseball. And as well, like I was at the winter meetings and I do all this research over at Brock University. So I went and I met with teams and I talked about uh, my research and just saw what the types of things that they're doing. How do you see the game of baseball kind of progressing? And one thing you actually mentioned at the driveline meetup was that the Houston Astros are at one point and then every other, which is about like five years ahead. And then every other team is like 25 years behind. So if you can maybe expand a little bit on that and just how the game is starting to shift so quickly in a forward direction. Yeah, most of the things, when I say that stuff, people either A, don't believe me, or B, if they do believe me, which is a very small percentage, they think uh, the reason is technical. Like, oh, the Astros are so much better because they hire machine learning engineers and they hire data scientists, which you can see open job positions for those jobs with Houston. I can pretty much guarantee that there's almost no other teams out there that have a machine learning engineer position open or even filled out there. Uh, There might be like one or two. And... So they think, oh, it's this really advanced technology, and they're so smart. And yes, they are smart. And yes, technically, they're very far ahead. Like they were early adopters of high-speed cameras, and and they're the way that they actually use the, that information is so much further ahead. But that's not alone the reason that they're thirty years ahead of everyone else. The reason is the Houston Astros are so far ahead is actually a pretty boring one. The general manager slash president of baseball ops, Jeff Lunau, is a management consultant who runs the Astros like a business. And so the and the owner supports him, which is really important. Like not enough people talk about Jim Crane, but he is really important to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so when Jeff says we're going to do this and people don't do that, Jeff fires them. Like it's pretty simple. That's how we do things at Driveline. If you don't do this stuff, you get like a warning and a development plan that if you continue to not do it, you get fired. And that's mm-hmm. how that works in pretty much every private business out there. And so, but in baseball, it does not. Like if you're a pitching coordinator and it's like, oh, we need you to do this stuff. Can you look into this stuff? Okay. And then they don't look into whatever it is. Long toss weighted baseballs, whatever. That person will have his job next year. There are pitching coordinators who have had a job for 15 years that just have not meaningfully advanced their knowledge in over a decade and a half. And that is completely unacceptable in the mind of Jeff. And the other thing that they've done is had a really good training program. The one year they fired every single pitching coach in the organization. All the minor league pitching coaches were not did not have their contracts renewed. Mm-hmm. And they brought in a bunch of failed, quote-unquote, college coaches, including Bill Murphy, who was the coach at Brown when they won six games. Terrible team. So, like, what does Bill know about coaching pitchers? Turns out a lot. Like, his mentality was good. Bill is now the coordinator of the Houston Astros. He's the pitching coordinator. Pete Patilla was my intern when he was there. Tall kid, never really played baseball, I don't think. Kind of, like, did Excel spreadsheets. Pete Patilla's the farm director. Right. Like these guys are come from humble backgrounds that have no real necessary education or playing experience or whatever. But what they have and what Jeff and Sig did such a good job of is finding people who are curious, intelligent and would work their ass off and provide a really, really good training program to make them who they are. And they deserve the credit for working their ass off, no doubt. But the organization deserves a credit for like actually running it like a business with a systematized process and outputs tied to incentives. If you do the work, you do good work, you get promoted. 
Like that's how it was. That's how it works and how it works in private business. But I can tell you that it doesn't work like that in probably every single baseball team besides the Astros. Some are more dysfunctional than the others, but the vast majority of the reason the Astros do such a good job is because it's run like a business and almost no other team sees it that way, which is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Kyle, this off season, you had a, a quite a bit of your staff kind of plucked away from you by some, uh, some big league clubs, you know, guys like Jason Ochart, Corey Popham, uh, Matt Daniels, Cam Castro, uh, kind of talk about, and then actually the list goes on. It's even larger than that. Uh, just kind of talk a little bit about what, what it's been like having, you know, kind of some of your staff, you know, being hired by these big league organizations and uh, kind of, if you saw that happening, you know, once you began to create driveline and kind of how, what it's like around the office, knowing that your staff is getting such great opportunities inside the game. It's both very humbling and very annoying. <laughs> you know, you have the teams certifying or signaling that they care, that they think we do a good job, so they hire our coaches away. That's cool. Uh, and presumably the coaches they interview, they like too. You know, obviously it goes both ways. So I'm very proud of people like Matt and Cam and so forth and Dimitri and, and you know, uh, to name the Blue Jays coaches, right, Corey Popham and Dimitri Kokoris, still very good friends of mine. I just saw them in Dunedin. was down there a couple weeks ago. And – I love all those guys. Obviously, don't fault any of them for leaving. Um, at the same time, the teams, I think, have this kind of interesting expectation. Like, we're going to hire a driveline coach, and that person's going to know top to bottom why driveline is really successful, and they're going to help, like, transform the organization. And then when the employees go in, they're like, hey, where's all the structure? They have a driveline. You know, it's like, oh, uh, yeah, we don't have that because <laughs> it's like how we structure our business is much different than how most teams structure their player development program so it's an adjustment period for both sides uh it's interesting because like it exposes exactly what i just pointed out about the astros Uh, we did not have and in my opinion continue to not have uh, a very like a world-class training operation on how to train our employees Uh, because we've mostly hired people who have either trained here or coached in college and used our stuff and had a good familiarity so then on-ramping them was fairly easy and was informal and everyone kind of pushed the boat in the right direction and we had a really good really good thing going but then when you lose a lot of your staff and major league teams start to acknowledge that you're doing something right and they want your people, you're like, oh, uh, yeah, we actually actually have to develop like a training system, don't we? And so like that's the, something that's exposed. Um, it's annoying, but it's also I'm very happy for it because training is one of the best things you can do for your employees and your staff. Uh, whether they necessarily like it or not is kind of a different situation. But like developing your staff is no different. Like we can't sit here and talk about how we're developing players really good and then not develop our staff. Like that seems kind of silly. And so that's that's a big focus for me going forward and something I'm really passionate about. And uh, like I said about Houston, I, I'm finding that many of the reasons that driveline can get better or many of the areas where we can get better and become more impactful and be better are on the management and business side and not on the technical side, which is uh, surprising to me, but is definitely true. Mm-hmm. And um, just one question about some of those hires. Uh, one in particular, Jason Ochart is over with the Phillies now as well. Um, I find a lot of what he does just so interesting. And I read a story on The Athletic about how he started off uh, coaching at, at a small college. And then he, he was doing a lot of da- uh, data-driven work. And then you found him and he came to work for uh, Driveline. Uh, can you like maybe touch a little bit on Jason Ochart and how it He's transitioned over with the Phillies because I think in my mind, that's an incredible hire for them. I think he will do a lot of great work over there, especially with kids like Mickey Moniak. And you can just see how the Phillies are moving in that sort of data driven direction. Um, Yeah, it's I can't say enough 
good stuff about Jason. Like we had a lot of high hopes when we hired him. I won't get too much into it. I don't want to waste a lot of time, but we mm-hmm. plucked him on Twitter because I, he developed a lot of really good players. He developed he, he developed players like Lucas Erceg, who was going to be a first rounder out of Cal anyway. So he didn't screw him up. So that was good. That's um, good. Yeah, it was good. But a lot of people would be like, "Oh, he developed Lucas," and yeah. it, that's not that's not the that's not what I thought. Like, and, I, and that's not Jason, what Jason would tell you. But what I was really interested in is he developed a lot of kids who had played at three different schools or were junior college washouts and former good prospects and then sucked. And they went to Menlo and then hit 15 home runs. You're talking about a Max Dudo, Garrett Gimiani, Daniel Comstock. You're talking about all these guys that really no one knows, but are actually really, really good college players um, and developed that way, Jordan Getzelman and others. And so when I saw that, it was like, okay, he can work with the first rounder, but then he can get the best out of the bottom end of the draft, out of kids that were going to like never play pro ball. And that was exciting because that's our clientele. And mm-hmm. I said, that that's cool. And he knows how to use social media to promote it. So then we brought him in and he just didn't believe, like we told him, like you're going to have 30 grand to hit tracks in a cage and do whatever you want with the money and set up the, set up your uh, hitting program, however you want. And um, I expect to lose money for 16 months. So you don't need to make any money. And mm-hmm. he was just like, okay, whatever. I want to come in and Kyle's going to have a hitting program and whatever. So he comes in on like three days before his official start date. And true to my word, I have 30 grand for him, hit tracks and a cage and no program. And he said, holy shit, you're like being serious. Like I can do whatever I want. I said, yeah, I'm not going to make you the director of hitting and then tell you what to do. That doesn't seem very smart. So he developed a program over the next two years, which um, I was very impressed about. He learned a lot about management, uh, which I never think he never really had to focus on until he was here, how to deal with a lot of players that were coming and going, uh, different colleges, different backgrounds, and he adapted very quickly. And then when he took the Phillies job, and I, I don't want to kind of break any confidentiality, but basically okay. Jason uploaded, Jason basically said, the Phillies have been great to work with, by the way, because like Jason, as you've read, still works here and then is on yep. loan to the Phillies. Uh, and that's true about Eric Jagers too. Our, he's, mm-hmm. he's there as well. So it's been an awesome relationship with Philadelphia. I can't say more. Uh, I can't say enough about how great, I, how I love the relationship because the reality is Jason and Eric would never have left driveline. And so instead of getting mad and hiring someone else, they just made it work out. You know, they're like, okay, let's make it work. So that was cool. Uh, but if Jason, so Jason told me kind of all the stuff that he had gotten done in spring training uh, over the last three months with the Phillies and he kind of outlined it for our team. And he said, here's what went right. And here's what didn't go right. And uh, like, here's the systems we developed. Here's the technology we've integrated. And I looked at the list of the things that he had gotten done. And it's a joke. It's just like, are you kidding me? If you told me going into spring training, this is your wish list, you might get 60% of that done. And he wanted to do more than that. And he got it all done, you know? And I was like, just tremendously shocked for a couple of reasons. One, that Jason was able to pull it off. I mean, I have ultimate confidence and faith in that guy. Uh, but he he took it to another level, and I'm very, very pleased and very impressed mm-hmm. uh, at how – and it elevates my game. It really realizes that I have to work harder. Uh, but then additionally, what it speaks to is, like, you can't – no one, one person can't get all that work done without the support of the team. And so what that says to me, and Jason says it all the time, but then I really saw it when I saw that list, was like, holy shit, the Phillies are serious. Like they actually really want to get better. They didn't just hire Jason to take him off the market and say they hired a good guy. You know, they hired Jason and let him do almost what I let him do, you know, which is nuts when you imagine that, because like, it's not, we're not just talking about a team. It's one thing to say like, yeah, just take over this program. It's no big deal. But then to take over the Phillies program 
You're talking about a lot of stuff, right? Like, what if Mike Schmidt visits, right? You're talking about a team that's 100 year, 100 plus years old, right? It's crazy. There's just a lot of like, there's a lot of legacy. The Phillies mean a lot to a lot of people, and to go in and to be trusted to change things wholeheartedly, while the hitting development, you know, has not been great with the Phillies, mm-hmm. objectively and logically, it makes a lot of sense. But then when you're actually there and you put on the Phillies uniform and you see, and I visited Clearwater and you talk to the GM and you talk to the people there and you talk to the coaches, you're like, wow. This is a really – it's a big emotional, mental, kind of psychological component to it as well. And so for Jason to handle that, um, I'm, you know, I'm just super happy for him. I'm super happy for the Phillies. And I also think that there's going to be um, there's gonna be some great, great development of the hitters there. And so I wouldn't look – to me, like, great if Moniac turns it around, awesome. Uh, if Cordy Hawkins, you know, or, like, not a hit, but uh, that's a White Sox player. But if there's all these other players that, like, turn it around and do well – then that's awesome. But like to me, what I'd be is just like, how about those like ninth rounders that everyone wrote off? How about those 30th rounders that start to move up to Reading and Lehigh Valley and start to develop? Like to me, it's like, okay, that, that's, that's what's exciting to me because that, and that's what should be exciting to a team. Generating mm-hmm. a ton of value out of your non-prospect players is a sign of a really good coach. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And we're, we're, we can talk to you about baseball forever, but uh, as we start to wrap this up, uh, the first thing I want to ask is, and we talked about a lot of stories um, over in, in in December. You you mentioned a really cool story with Walker Bueller. Uh, we see all about uh, what's what's happened with Kyle Zimmer. Um, so, what is the future of Driveline look like, and what is what does your future with Driveline look like? Because you have your own podcast, uh, the Driveline Podcast, and you mentioned how you still really want to be a pitching coordinator for a team while still remaining at Driveline. What is the future like for you guys? Yeah, I stood up in front of a, me and my partner, Mike Rathwell, stood up in front of all of our employees and said, we have no idea what the future of driveline is going to be because Jeff Passan loves to say the game in this kind of five-year period is going to change more than it's changed in the last 30 years. And I uh, think I agree. You know, I agreed then, but then a year later, he said it about a year ago. And so to, to see now how much it's changed in a year, it's unreal. Just Just think about like, 20 people connected to driveline got hired into coaching roles in one off season. Absurd. Like a coach, a coach from Arkansas, Wes Johnson, never played, never coached pro ball, like immediately hired as the big league pitching coach of the twins. Literally unheard of crazy. Like that shit is unreal. That stuff is, that's the stuff that changes the game forever. And so uh, we, we got to meet and driveline's always been about that. It's not been about weighted balls. It's not been about biomechanics. It's not been about, data-driven, whatever. It's been about meeting the market where it's at. Like, we know that baseball is going in this direction and where we got to meet it where it is. So I think it is about developing really good technical systems. I can say that from my end since I'm the chief technical officer now. I'm really focused on building out the best integrated systems uh, with, like, blast sensors, hit tracks, uh, specifically edutronic cameras, and, like, developing really, really good, robust platform, technology platforms that can immediately be rolled out to a team. Like, that's the number one thing that I think Driveline's going to stand for. It's going to be a really good integrator of technology, a good innovator of technology. We're going to develop some hardware ourselves that will be coming out over the next year that I think will be really cool. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, like, we're going to be the people that, like, make it all work together into a player development system. And what that looks like, I'm not sure, but I know that that's the direction that I want to take it. And then as far as me... I have a personal goal. You know, I'd love to be a big league pitching coach by the time I'm 40. I'm 35 now. Uh, I talked to my team. I said I have, like, kind of some goals. I have, like, a 24-month plan on what I need to get done professionally, personally, get my life in order, these types of things. And I've, I've been really attacking that pretty hard over the last couple of weeks. And I'd love to be a big league pitching coach. I'd also love to be the director of pitching for a team and, like, take over 
like the development, the hiring, and the organization. Um, I actually think that probably works together. Like I take the director of pitching job, do that for a couple of years, and then become the big league pitching coach for a team uh, while still working here at Driveline. So, but to get there, I need to turn the things over, turn all my roles over to the people that deserve it. Like Joe Marsh is now the director of R&D. I got to make sure quantitative analysis is going to be a huge part of our business. Like I got to make sure that's in good hands. Uh, I got to make sure that biomechanics is in good hands. I got to make sure that we name a chief technical officer who can handle all the information technology because out of all the people here, I'm the only one that knows how to set up servers and actually configure a network. So uh, I can't be gone while the network's down. That's probably not a good idea. So there's a lot of, a lot of really big challenges business-wise, and I know it's kind of boring, and I've talked about it all podcasts, but the challenges are business and management related. I really believe that, and they're not technically related. Um, and that's, I think I talked to you, I think I talked to Richard about that when we sat down a little bit at the in the hotel. I talked to him about, like, it's all about systems development, it's all about accuracy, it's all about integrity, and... Once you get the technical down, it's not that's not very hard. But once you get that down, it's about how do you scale it, right? It's one thing to say, we could do this really well. How do you do it for 200 people? How do you de- how do you deploy it in the Dominican Republic? How do you deploy it in Venezuela? How do you deploy it in Australia? How do you take it on the road? You know, and like those are the things that are like super exciting, and that's where baseball is going now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to wrap this entire episode out, which and this has just been an incredible conversation. We've learned a lot from this, but. Like I said, I'm 24. Uh, Peyton, he's in his early 20s. Pete, honestly, he looks like he's 12. Um, <laughs> uh, coming from you, um, there's uh, we have a lot of uh, younger listeners. If you can give us like a piece of advice for kids our age trying to break into pro baseball, trying to get a job and try to get their foot in the door, what would you suggest to these kids? Uh, it's such a great time. I'm so jealous. I tried to break in 12 years ago and it sucked. You know, <laughs> I get a right for free and. It's brutal. Like, but now, you know, the idea that you would ever be hired as the player development, impossible. That you would ever coach a player, you would ever coach a pro? No. Like at 25 years old and is a nerd, no chance. And yet someone I know is that he's 24 years old and he's the pitching coordinator of the Mariners. Think of that. He's 24 years old. He never played pro ball, never coached it. Coached the junior college for two years in Florida. And now he's the coordinator of the Mariners. He's in charge of a bunch of 50-year-old coaches. Unbelievable, right? That's crazy. How did it happen? Right. Well, he had, he did a good job of kind of developing his own. His name is Max Wiener, by the way, and he's developed his own kind of like brand. He developed some players. Uh, he wrote about it on the internet, uh, but then he took a job with the Indians, and he did a really good job, in my opinion, of being a player development kind of not an intern, but like he uh, he didn't coach. He wasn't coaching uh, short season or anything. He just kind of coached uh, individual players at the complex. And he used a data driven approach. He really embraced what Cleveland had to, had to offer. He made a lot of mistakes. I think he learned from a lot of his mistakes. And then as a result, you know, he moved up all the way to coordinator, which is certainly uncommon. But, like, that's the thing. Like, the, the kids today, like, if you're 22, 24 years old, you throw good batting practice, you can wheel the fungo pretty good, you're good on social media, and you can write some sequel, and you can, like, really kind of have your hands around, like, Rapsodo or high-speed footage, you know, high-speed filming. If you can do that stuff, I mean, you're going to get a job. It's, it's, it's unbelievable because there's just not enough kids that can do that out there. You're going to get a job as a fourth coach for like Inland Empire for the Angels or you're going to go to like Charleston for the Yankees or something like that. And like, are you going to get paid a lot? No, but you are going to get paid something and you're going to wear a uniform. You're going to wear the Yankees uniform. You're going to wear the Blue Jays uniform. You're going to wear the Rangers uniform. And, and that w- that's literally insane to say that. Like just 12 years ago, shit, three years ago, that's not a possibility. So today it's like, 
have good feel. Like you got to be able to do the small stuff right. If you throw a good batting practice, you hit good fungos. Like that stuff really matters to pros. And then you need to be good at like SQL a little bit with the scripting language like PHP or Python. Uh, and then, yeah, like probably some good with technology. Like you can prove that you can read a Rapsodo report. You know how to set it up. You've taken some high-speed footage. You understand that. Um, you do that, and you're going to get a job. I mean, shoot, there's just not a lot of kids that can do that. And But that won't last forever, right? So do that now. Get in, and then you're going to move up quick in an organization. I see it all the time. So it's a great – it's probably the best time since I've been trying to do this to get into baseball. And uh, I don't think it's going to last very long. So definitely people need to hop on it if they're trying to get in. Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, anyways, Kyle, thank you so much for being on this episode of the pitch, of Pitching to Contact. Pete, thank you as always. Peyton, thank you as always. This has been an incredible talk. Kyle, I would love to have you on again at some point. Thank you again. Yeah, I'm sure we'll do it again. There's a lot to cover. But uh, thanks for having me on, guys, and great questions, and we'll do it again. Awesome. Until next week, guys. Bye.